1: Welcome listeners to episode 111 of the Odd Nauseam podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker on this sunny Saturday um, in the frigid temperature. We just got through some really frigid temperatures. It's
0: kind of warming up out there now. It was cold.
1: Yeah. It was, uh, but uh, it's it's looking beautiful out there with the sun reflecting off the snow. I'm loving it. We don't get many days like that. No, it's incredible.
0: Yeah. Blue sky, sun pouring down, melting the ice, melting the snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, I'm doing pretty well in terms of not complaining about the weather. Excellent. You notice I haven't said Smarch once. Not once. On this entire podcast. No. In, you know, several weeks. I know, I know. Hence, so we at Sunshine, we have some warm temps coming here to the frozen tundra. Yeah, and uh, I got on my tauntaun yesterday and oh. went down to the um, I don't know the quickie mart or something like that mm-hmm. and bought some snacks and uh, made it back without having to eviscerate the animal and, and crawl
1: inside. That's it, correct uh, to save yourself from the bitter cold. Yes. How right. about you? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing well. Um, but listeners, if you're new to the podcast, that other voice you hear. Is my co-host Dr. David Noe? Oh, you're gonna introduce me? Yeah, on the other side of the ta- on the ta- on the other side of the table. But I appreciate um, that. I'd ask you how you were doing, but it seems like you're doing pretty
0: well. Not as well as you. Oh no! Whenever well, I get into the car, you say, "Great, I'm doing great." Yeah. It takes me some time to uh, work up to that. I got you,
1: but it feels like you're getting there.
0: I am. All right. One thing that's going to help is if we mention a corrigendum. Oh,
1: this is very important.
0: It is. Yeah. yeah. So on the previous episode, the last one before this one, um, someone said that uncrustables. Mm -hmm. was a product of Nabisco, the National Biscuit Company.
1: That's not correct. That's not correct at all. So I know
0: those of you who are at home taking notes, trying to keep everything squared away, you thought that that was made by Nabisco. It's a product of Smucker's.
1: Oh, okay. So Smucker's
0: right. makes the Uncrustables. That's right. This okay. is uh, some kind of sandwich. I still haven't yet tasted one. I've just gazed at them longingly from a distance. <laughs> it's some kind of a sandwich from which the crust has been mo- removed, thus the name.
1: Right, right. So it saves you all of that time of cutting right. off that, that, that crust, right? Yep. Wow. I, I'm Wow. If somebody had asked me about like about the Smucker's company, I would have sworn that they were a subsidiary of the Nabisco company. Would you? Right, but they're their own behemoth. And I life. would
0: have thought that Nabisco was a subsidiary of NECO. NECO? You've heard of NECO? Like the NECO wafer? That's correct. And you know what that stands for? What? New England Candy Company. Is that right? Yes. It's... All these brands with their acronyms.
1: I think I just learned last week that Nabisco is National Biscuit Company. I know. You're surprised. No idea.
0: Yes. It's crazy. It's surprised. And you know what Welch stands for?
1: Well, like oh, like the the grape juice.
0: Yeah, yeah. What is it? It's the name of the guy that you know oh. figured out the pasteurization <laughs> of grape juice, so we don't have to drink nasty wine. Wow, man, you are font of all kinds of irrelevant, barely useful, useless information. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking of irrelevancies, yeah. we have no shout out this week. We don't. We but nothing. we shouldn't dwell on that too long. No. I would say, let's just move right on. We, I think we
1: have some people that are. They're interested in getting a shout out. They're maybe just a little shy. We got to drag mm-hmm. them over that, uh, over into the end zone.
0: Yes. Okay. okay. So um, we got an opening quote this week as we continue on in our discussion of Aeneid book nine.
1: Yeah. Shall I read this?
0: I would like that. All right. Yes.
1: So uh, just to set this up a little bit, um, if you listened to the previous episode, we spent a lot of time talking about Nisus and Urialis, these two uh, young Trojans um, who uh, go out on this night raid. Um, they're going out to bring Aeneas back to the camp. Um, but before going there, they go into the Rutulian camp and they slaughter a bunch of them and they steal a bunch of their stuff, um, but they don't make it out.
0: No, it's a tragedy. They end in a pile of corpses right. piled upon each other with the Rutulians, having dispatched them for their bloodlust. Exactly. Right. And we, we were talking about how
1: that uh, compares or is a corollary to the Dolinea episode in Book 10 of the Iliad. And so I found this quote. Um, by one George Duckworth. This is from an article called The Significance of Nisus Nurealis for Aeneid 9 through uh, 12 uh, from the American Journal of Phil- Philology way back in April of 1967. Hmm. So um, I thought this is kind of a nice way to maybe kind of round this episode off or to add a couple more uh,
0: things to it. To maybe bridge a little bit with the previous one?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. So Duckworth writes, killing the enemy was not the purpose of the night expedition. It was not necessary for them, Nisus and Urialis, to cut their way pair hostes through the enemy. Nisus himself knew that the Rutulians were buried in sleep and wine, and Virgil stresses the needlessness of the slaughter by his many additional allusions to their drunkenness. Carteau suggests that if Virgil had allowed Nisus and Urialis to slip through the camp unseen without slaying the enemy, the exploit would not have been sufficiently heroic or homeric. This rather misses the point. Virgil was more interested, I believe, in showing that the two young men do the wrong thing and pay the penalty for their actions. The slaughter of the Rutulians delayed their per- departure from the camp and Euryalus created an additional delay by taking booty. Had they left earlier, they would have avoided the cavalry led by Vulcans and they still might have escaped unnoticed had it not been for the fateful helmet. Hmm. Nisus, the faster runner, did get away and it was due in part to the onerosa pride, the, um, the the heavy loot. that Urialis uh, Urialis fell behind and was captured. Again, Nisus could have done the right thing and carried out his mission, but his first thoughts were of Urialis, and he sacrificed himself for his friend. Virgil thus gives us in the night expedition a story of mistakes which lead to disaster. There is no divine intervention, and the story illustrates the working of free will. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I tend on the whole to agree with that.
0: I think that's a good interpretation.
1: We were saying something last week about... Um, you might see this episode in the Aeneid as being, in some ways, almost a moral corrective to the Dolinaya. So we get the same kind of scene, but we get uh, Nisus and Uralis paying for their crimes, as opposed to Odysseus and Diomedes getting away.
0: Right. So I don't know. Um, I mean, what did you think of this quote? Did you... I think it's right on. Okay. Uh, A little bit at the end there, it's it's an illustration of the working of free will. Uh, That may be going a little bit too far, because it seems to me, as we discussed last time, Virgil is so intent at the beginning to bring to our consciousness this question is every man a god to himself or mm-hmm. does some god overtake him right yes 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 so yes. i don't think that the conclusion really shows that you know one's own desire becomes a god to himself uh, but i'm i'm definitely on board with duckworth's interpretation that there is a moral punishment here mm-hmm. and uh, in that sense it's a it's not a correction of homer so much but it's a, a taking it in a different direction. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah, another thing I thought and I think this will this will um touch upon what we'll talk about later in this book is this idea. Maybe yeah, maybe the free will aspect goes too far, but I do think Virgil much more so than Homer is distancing himself or the the figures in the Aeneid are, are more distant from the gods. The gods are more removed yes. than they are certainly in an epic like the like the like the Iliad. Um and so We'll get into this this kind of aspect when um, when Virgil invokes the muses once again. There's this uh, I think this interesting similarity with Homer, where you know Homer calls upon the muses to inspire his poetry, and Virgil will uh, call upon the muses, but more as kind of a, as a um, as a helper, right, rather than just kind of pure inspiration. So right. I, I, I saw maybe another aspect of, of Virgil almost keeping the gods at arm's length. Yes, right. I think
0: that's very accurate. Okay. Yeah. So we move on now, right? Yes. Let's... And uh, we're going to give the the listeners today the conclusion of book nine, mm-hmm. right? So we will finish what, uh, the three quarter point of the epic? Yes. Having books 10, 11, and 12 uh, still to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens generally speaking? Can you give like a one sentence summary of the second half? Of Book Nine, what are we looking at?
1: But lots of bodies being cut down. Okay, it, it's very battley. Okay, right. So we, we we begin our the second half with a couple of uh, post mortem decapitations. Oh,
0: really? So and that okay. sets the tone, I think, for for what's to come. Hmm. Right. This is the Iliadic portion. So we're at uh, line 450. Is that right?
1: Yes. And so the Rutulians wake up. They they discover the slaughter in the camp, um, and so now they're all revved up for. Oh, we got we're going to take the fort and we're going to teach these Trojans a lesson. Yeah. Um. And they they um. They signal they signal their fury by taking the uh, the heads of Neasus Neuralis, putting putting them on pikes and Whoa. and kind of you know shaking them in the in the general direction of the Trojans.
0: Yeah, to, that's yeah. not nearly as popular as it used to be. Heads on pikes. Yes, it
1: used to be like every every weekend.
0: You can see uh, in pretty much any you know conquest in in the past, right? This was a common trope. And uh, I finally wrapped up that biography of Ulysses Grant yeah. by Ron Chernow, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the facts I learned afterwards, not in the book is in the last days of that conflict between the north and the south um, uh, Custer and uh, Sherman and uh, who was the uh, who was the southern guy I don't know but they were uh, the the fighting became so intense that they were delivering uh, bodies and wheelbarrows and so forth in really? terms of here's one of yours you know how do you like that the hatred was so intense so keen was the conflict at that point.
1: So that in some ways the so the the body in the wheelbarrows is a it is like the a, like the, the head, head on, on the a pike. pike. Yeah. Yeah.
0: In eighteen sixty five. So a real pivotal moment.
1: Interesting, interesting. Um so yeah, so we get Nisus and Uri Urialis impaled. Um and then uh, we get this extended scene where Urialis's mother finds out about this. Mm. And this extended lament for her son, mm. which I think is is also interesting and And I think it has some interesting parallels with the Iliad.
0: Yes. Very pathetic. Filled with pathos. Mm -hmm. I remembered who it was. Yeah. Uh, The Confederate general was John Singleton Musby. Okay. The gray ghost, as they called him. Why do they call him that? Because he rode on a horse. He wore gray as a Confederate. And he apparently was very elusive. Uh Uh-huh. Hard to catch. Nice. Later on became a close friend of Grant after the war was over. Really? Believe it or not. That is crazy.
1: So uh, Dave, you wanna start you wanna uh, read read us some Latin here?
0: I would. I'd okay. love to. So this is line four fifty. We're in Book Nine of the Aeneid. torres praida rutilis, poly isquaputiti, wolken mumflentes flentes, ferre necmen nec minor incastris luctus from neta erdreperto, ex primis una tot peremptis Serdra ser no quenuma gains concursus aripsa ipsa, corpora se many case. Tepi da re kaida pleno spumantis sanguine rivos. All right. Oh, those last couple lines. Uh, That's grim. Just, just gross. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, um, let me give you Lombardo's translation and a little bit more. And Love you'll, it. You'll definitely get uh, some of the uh, Iliadic aspects of what's going on here. So the Rutulians went back to the camp, victorious and weeping, carrying their spoils and the lifeless body of Vulcans. Their, their lamentation was still louder in the camp when they found Ramne's pale corpse And so many of their best men, Seranus, Numa, massacred. A great throng rushed to the dead and dying men. The ground steamed with slaughter and the foaming blood ran in rivulets. Talking amongst themselves, they recognized the spoils. Mesopis' shining helmet. Other bits of gear won back with so much sweat. Yeah. So that, uh, yes, uh, the ground steamed with slaughter and the foaming blood ran in rivulets. It's grim. It is very grim.
0: It's grim. But, you know, this is kind of part and parcel of any kind of epic. You have to have these moments... And uh, once again, bringing Ovid into the discussion, uh, when we get to the Metamorphoses, you see him playing around with these battle tropes. You have to have elements of grim description, of macabre moments—sorry, macabre <laughs> moments—in uh, warfare. Yeah. But Ovid can't help, you know, playing it for humor. It has just become so ridiculous and trite by that point. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, Virgil retains a kind of grandeur in the midst of this grotesquerie you might say
1: exactly and i think what adds to kind of the the, the tragedy is that i um, mean what has been gained here this was not some pivotal battle no you know, by which someone has you know has gained ground or moved the right the the, the the matter towards conclusion it just seems like a senseless slaughter
0: absolutely right. senseless
1: Right. And so you know, even at that, that last uh, bit, they recognize the spoils, Masapus's shining helmet, other bits of gear won back with so much sweat. Right. So they, they lost a lot of bodies in getting back right. a few pieces of gear.
0: Yeah, and that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of a stalemate, the futility of war. But to Virgil's credit, mm-hmm. he can tell the story with panache, even though I don't think he is in any way advocating warfare in, in a real sense. Right, right.
1: Can I make a? Uh, I'm going to make a comparison to uh, Tar- okay. Tarantino. We've talked. I, I know about who this. that is. You Quentin. Yes. Right.
0: But in ter- have you seen any of his films? No. Oh, no, not a one. No. Okay. Well, one Reservoir, of the things. Reservoir. Ca- Reservoir Cats. What was the other one that he was really um, famous for? Uh,
1: Pope. Pope Fiction. That's right. <laughs> well, one of the things that Tarantino is famous for is is kind of the over the top blood and gore mm-hmm. to the point where it becomes
0: cartoonish. Yeah.
1: And you know, I, I wonder in some ways, is, you, you know, you're talking about kind of Ovid's approach Right. This, it strikes me. Maybe. You're going to compare them? Yeah. I'm going to okay. compare Quentin Tarantino and uh, Publius Nazo Oudius. Okay. In the sense that he uses it for a special effect, but he's also kind of winking at the audience at the same time. Like, look how ridiculous this is. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, what I would like to see sometime in a movie, or maybe I should say what I would like to hear, is a very accomplished actor you know, with a very uh, beautiful voice, whether male or female, mm-hmm. describing something horrific like this. Mm. And I would like to see if the description can be more disturbing, riveting, interesting, compelling, you know, morally, or I can't say visually, uh, than the endless CGI, mm. which is so rapid yeah. and the shake technique. It's It doesn't really have any impact. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. no I, I mean, that's, that's kind of a... Um... Uh, you're kind of describing Greek tragedy, right? Exactly. Where, where, you know, the horror is in the is in the mind. Right. It's in the description, not in what you see on the stage. So yeah. I think
0: there's a shortcut that's being taken. You know, it, it uh, shortchanges the imagination. <laughs> Whereas when you read something like this, uh, a great throng rushed to the dead and dying men. The ground steamed with slaughter, and the foaming blood ran in rivulets. That requires something on the part of the listener in terms of what are we imagining, and um, do we even want to? Right. Your your mind can't help but go through. The steps that the the text lays out, yeah, but it's going to look different for each person, right? Right? No,
1: that's exactly right. And I think that's why every filmed version of of uh, of Homer, right. has come up short. Yeah, it, it can't it can't match it. And I think w- there uh, remind me there is that one. So, somebody sent us so there was like some Italian TV of the Aeneid of the Aeneid, yeah. right? Um, but did there, you watch
0: it? I haven't watched it. I yet.
1: I mean I I watched a, a few a clips of it, but. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the the Italian was too rapid. I couldn't even right. really tell what was happening. Right. You know, I think it was in the seventies too. So the production values were,
0: were panini, panini, well. espresso. That's exactly. about as far as I got. <laughs>
1: exactly right, right, right. So, all right. So, moving on in the story, um, and then this is something I want to get your opinion on. Okay. So, we, uh, there's a uh, Virgil takes quite some time talking about the reaction of Uri Alice's mother to right. this, right? And so, um, I don't. I was just kind of curious. Why do you think? Um, Virgil goes here. So, Urielis is not a major character. We saw him once before in the foot race. Right. Um, he has this kind of tragic scene. Why I draw it out was kind of bringing his mother into hmm. this. And, and so, it it, 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 it I mean, what bugged me about it was okay, I get the episode is tragic, but there's been almost nothing in this epic to connect me to Urielis. Why should I really care about his death? I see. And then why so extend it
0: to his mother? Right, because he's so anonymous. Yeah. I don't know. It's not a question I've thought about a lot. Uh, we, could, we could speculate that it's the anonymity by which Virgil tries to connect the character to those, you know, persons in his audience that, that don't have a real stake in the epic. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, they can, they can see themselves in Euryalus in a way that they can't maybe in one of the major players. I don't know. Everybody has a mother, right? Yeah. And if you're going to try to talk a little bit about the costs of war, you have to see it through the eyes of one of the innocent bystanders right. who suffers the most. Yeah. Uh, to keep referring to uh, American history and that conflict, uh, yeah, this will go away eventually. But I just read this massive book. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Lincoln's famous letter, you know, to the um, the Union mother who had lost something like five sons. Oh, yeah, that's right. And he has that famous expression, uh, you know. Very costly was the sacrifice that you laid on the altar of freedom. Mm -hmm. And um, so maybe it's kind of like that, right? You don't really realize the futility and the brutality of what's happening on the Italian landscape until you step back and see it through the eyes of Urielis' mother. Right. No,
1: sympathetic person. I really like that. I mean, that's kind of one place my my mind went to as well is that um, what it reminded me of broadly was um, Hecuba's lament. For yes. Hector. But it's the, the fact that um, it, Virgil gives us the lament of a, of a, of, of a woman, of a, of a minor character. Yep.
0: In some ways, it makes it more real. Definitely. Right? Definitely. And because so, we can't really relate to someone like Hector. Exactly. We do not have divine descent. That's what separates all those characters from a person like Euryalus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and you can extend this uh, to who are the other mothers in the epic, right? Mm. You've got Juno... Nobody wants her as a mother, and you also have Venus, who is Aeneas's mother, but she's flaky. Yeah, other than well said. Yeah, other than caring for his destiny, she doesn't really care for anything. Right. She eludes and um, you know escapes and disappoints him. There's no affection. There's no gentleness. She advances his glory. But other than that, we haven't seen her since Book Four, right? No, we haven't seen her in quite a while. No, so she doesn't care for anybody. And you got the, the other, the other mother, right, Amata, who is yeah. um, what she's inhabited by Electo, the Fury. Right. So there's really no gentleness at all. M- maybe that's part of the that's purpose. part of it, kind
1: of it balances that out. Correct. Yeah. So it reminded me of um, of Hecuba's lament from um, Book Twenty Two of the Iliad. Yes. I, um, I want to just read A.S. Klein's translation Excellent. here. Excellent. Um, so uh, he translates. Now among the women, uh, Hecuba raised loud lament. My child, how wretched I am! Why should I live on in suffering? Now you are dead. You were my pride of Troy, night and day, a savior, greeted as a god by every man and woman in this city. Surely their great glory while you lived, but now death and fate overtake you. Mm. So I mean, so there's a similar kind of um, uh, of aspect in where Eurialus's uh, mother, she calls into question, like why do we even come why right. why did, was it worth it if i lose my
0: son mm-hmm. it's
1: very personal but of course the difference is the hopes of the trojans aren't riding on the the shoulders of Urialis, No, right and oh, so
0: in heck in the case of hector obviously that's the contrast you're making yes the death of hector is the death of troy
1: right so i mean that, i think that that kind of mm. underlines what, what you were saying is that this is In some ways, it makes it more relatable. It makes it more, um, you know, on the ground human. You know, Mm -hmm. you could look at a figure like Hector as kind of, it's very tragic, but he's kind of superhuman. Definitely. We don't, and in the Iliad, we don't get a lot of, you know, windows into the everyday Trojans' lives and struggle. No. There's just this mass out on the battlefield, right? Well, there's
0: that one scene in book six from the sky, I think it's book six, from the sky and gates, where Hector and Andromache and Astyanax and the nurse have that very tender moment. That's true, yeah. But, you know, that that's the exception that proves the rule, so to speak, because other than that, like you're saying, there's no domestic gentleness really in the epic. Yeah. That's the one scene. Yeah. It also puts me in mind of uh, Euripides, I'm sorry, Hecuba and Odysseus have this really interesting interaction. She's a slave of war now, mm-hmm. and she is only intent on protecting her remaining children, and she has this uh, unvaunted courage Uh, in the face of Odysseus, who in that play, at least, is kind of a brutal murderer.
1: He is in in actually lots of places. Yes. Within (laughs) the Odyssey, even to some degree, but outside of the Odyssey, particularly. In tragedy. You're right. Yes.
0: Yeah. So it it could be that Virgil has um, that scene in mind from the Iliad and maybe some scenes, uh, book 22, like you were saying, and maybe some scenes from tragedy as well. Yeah. uh, In which, you know, the mother gets a moment of... um, Sad glory, you might say, in the spotlight.
1: Right. No, I. Th- I think uh, definitely some Euripidean influence mm-hmm. here. Th- didn't, That didn't strike me. But I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, as uh, Euripides more so than, Aeschylus and Sophocles, definitely are very interested in kind of the the everyday, right? And and kind of you know what makes you know what what makes the the lives of of uh, um of ordinary people
0: right uh, yeah, move and tick yeah. right. Yeah. So we move on then mm-hmm. uh, to lines. 500, basically 503 through 589. Right. And we got the full scale attack now on the Trojan camp. Yes. So these are the Rutulians, And now um, the Trojan camp is like a besieged Troy once again, right? We have a little mini Iliad kind of.
1: Exactly. That Trojans find themselves exactly where they were
0: right. before. What, about, <laughs> about 10 years previous or something? <laughs> yeah. Inside a city being besieged by enemies. But... Uh, the the cleverness of it, the genius, is that they are the foreigners. You know, they are the invading power, now besieged, and they're being besieged by those who actually live there. Right. So right. It's the opposite. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, kind of the same, but also with its own, own unique twist to it. Correct. Yeah. Turnus calls the crew together, and they're going to attack this camp, and they're going to get over the walls and um, take care of this problem once and for all. Now, what's, I thought this was quite interesting is that Virgil pauses, he come, breaks into the narrative, and he calls upon the muse uh, once again. Again? Again. And so, you you know, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think in the Iliad of the Odyssey we get another invocation of the muse as, uh, outside of line one, do we?
0: In the Iliad, yes. We Remember do. Remember in book two with the, oh, uh, with the catalog with the, of ships. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. All right. Um, but Virgil, uh, we've seen him call upon the muse in the. I
0: think this is the third time. The now. third time, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a, um, also different than than Homer. It's a specific muse. Yes, you know, he called upon Erato earlier, and now it's now it's a, a Calliope, right? The muse of epic, and so he calls upon this particular muse to help him continue the tale. Um, and just this kind of struck me: why now? Mm-hmm. Why that particular muse? Um, why does Virgil invoke when he invokes the muses uh, more specific about which of the 9 he's he's in, is invoking? Right. Um and w- what exactly is he up to? Hmm. Um and so I, I I have another actually another a second op quote below. Yes. <laughs> um
0: do we want to deal with the uh the character of Calliope there in uh, line 525? Yeah, you want you before read, we get into that? Yeah, read a little bit of Latin and okay. then Okay. Uh, it's just so much fun to say the name Calliope, right? Yes, it is. Wo so calliope precor aspirata cadenti, quasi bitum ferrdro strages, quai funeraturnus, e quisqueberum de miserit orco, et me kin gentis ordras e wawata belli. All right. And can you read some of uh is it Lombardo here? This is Lombardo, okay. yes.
1: Breathe into me, muses, I pray, O Calliope, as I sing the slaughter and death Turnus dealt, and whom each hero sent down to Orcus,
0: Unroll with me the great scroll of war. That's a great line. It is. Nice job, Lombardo. Unroll with me the great scroll of war. That's nice. Right.
1: So, I mean, so uh, what's your sense of kind of why Virgil breaks in here? Because it it interrupts the action. Is it kind of a dramatic effect, almost like taking a big breath before the big battle scene? In the
0: most general sense, yes. Okay. It's It's a device. It's a trope to get the audience to focus more closely on what's coming. In case they're a little weary of the slaughter, here's an attempt to refocus their intention, Their attention. Okay. Right? Uh, try to find, um, I don't know, let's try to find some kind of analog from stage or something. You're introducing a new guest, right? A mm-hmm. new guest comes onto the show. You don't just say, and here comes so-and-so, and they stroll out, right? Right. There's a buildup. Yes. You've got to get the audience engaged. So you change in music. Right. A dramatic pause sometimes. Can you think of any other analogs?
1: I, I mean, I like that. Okay, yeah, you get the you get the the the, the music, the tension. It's it's kind of building something to a climax, mm-hmm. and then the, then the, when the when the scene starts, that's the release. Yeah. Now, yeah.
0: if there are any other theological or philosophical reasons why Calliope, why the muse instead of just some other kind of device? You know, I don't have anything on that. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, no, no thoughts. For
1: well, that. but maybe that's where i making. I can bring in this uh, piece okay. by Samuel Bassett, mm. who wrote this um, way back uh, in 1934.
0: Was this the guy the inventor of the hound?
1: The, the Bassett hound, right? I think that um, I think that predated him.
0: Okay, he might All be right. from the Bassett
1: family. That, so this right.
0: is uh, the Classical Weekly, yes,
1: 1934, right? And so he wrote this article, uh, kind of uh, puzzling about well, why does Virgil invoke the muse here, mm-hmm. and you know, how might he might be kind of tagging Homer. So he writes, Virgil gives uh, to his tale the semblance of reality in the way quite different from Homer's. Homer makes the muse alone responsible for the story. Virgil makes her a junior partner with minor responsibilities and duties. Virgil announces his theme in the first person, Cano. Homer bids the muse tell the tale. Only once at the beginning of the catalog, Iliatuca, as you were saying, mm-hmm. does Homer use a verb in the first person in a passage in which he invokes the muses. This is at the beginning of an excursus where the narrative pauses... And the poet speaks at considerable length in propria persona. Mm-hmm. In this respect, Virgil is diametrically opposed to Homer. He regularly invokes the muse when he is about to interrupt the flow of his narrative and introduce a passage which is of the na- of the nature of an excursus. Compare Aeneid 7, uh, 37 to 80, the description of conditions in Latium when Aeneas arrived there. Uh, later in book 7, the catalog of forces opposed to Aeneas. And then earlier in book 9, Sibylle's request of Jupiter made long before the time of the story and at the beginning of the epic, which will be considered presently. The only place in which in the Aeneid where Virgil calls upon the muse before an episode of the narrative itself is not a real exception to the rule that has just been stated. And then he quotes the lines that um, you just read and Lombardo translated. Right. This is an invocation of the muses to describe action in the story. It is not in an excursus. It reproduces the Homeric original, but with two important differences. Homer asks the muses themselves to narrate, Virgil bespeaks only their cooperation. Makeum a walwit, unroll with me. Yeah. So he sees that Virgil is kind of an equal partner with the muse, not just a kind of a medium through which the muse sings. Now I see by the by the look on your face, you're not quite buying it.
0: I'm a little confused here. Okay. Is, is the whole point that Bassett is attempting to make here as he bays on the, uh, you know, the content? Is is the only point he's trying to make? Is that Virgil sees himself as a partner with the muses, and Homer asks the muse to do the work on her own. Is that it?
1: I think that's the main point he's trying to make. Okay, so... It took a long time to get there. He
0: did. Yeah. So I can grant that, but how does the notion of the excursus play into this, as opposed to the narration of real events? That part was lost on me.
1: I think he was was trying to, I think, trying to make a distinction, like, what... um, like almost a mini genre within the narrative. Okay. Like, so if you're if you're going to narrate in one particular way, the muses are singing directly through you. Okay. If you're just simply kind of um, um, laying out a description of something, well, then maybe uh, you can kind of pull your own weight with the muse. I see. Yeah. And so Homer does not have excursions. He, he, he does not do that.
0: But Virgil has two different kinds of invocations. Yes. The excursus and the here I'm working with the muse to tell the story. Right. So so why is that significant? I mean, I can grant that that seems to be an a distinction between Virgil and Homer, but can we make any hay out of that?
1: Well, I think I would connect it back to that that idea we were talking about at the beginning of the episode of um, this kind of this distance that the gods have, okay, right? And so, in the Iliad, uh, particularly, the, the gods are are right there. In the the Dolinea, Athena is right there, and um, in the Neasus and uh, episode, they muse upon: Are the gods involved? We right. become gods in doing this. You know, who's motivating this? Right. And so, by Virgil almost um, keeping the, the muses off at, at arm's length or kind of linking arms with the muse, it's, I think it's another way of kind of, of um, lowering the, the, the place of the gods in the story.
0: So I think I have a, a point here that can reinforce what you're saying. Okay. Uh, the year was 1996, perhaps, and a very famous Homeric scholar, Jenny Strauss Clay, uh, came to the University of Iowa, where I was at the time, a young graduate student, and she gave a lecture on Homer. And uh, it was very interesting. It was riveting, actually. Mm. And she began in the way that A Good Scholar Begins, which is setting up the tension of the question, which usually involves citing the persons that she has read and their take on some issue, and then pulling the rug out from underneath all of them yes. and saying, But this is what it really means. Yeah. <laughs> and she did this very well. And she said, So much ink has been spilt on what is Homer's purpose in the Iliad? Hmm. And then she laid out, I don't remember, the you know, the loser interpretations, yeah. which I don't remember because they were the bad ones, right? Losers. Right. Oh, yeah. Two or three of them. And then she says, but actually, the purpose of the Iliad is presented right in the proemium itself, where it says And so the will of Zeus was fulfilled. Hmm. This is it, right? This is the purpose of the Iliad, to fulfill the will of Zeus. And then she traced that theme, you know, um, passim throughout the rest of the epic and showed, yeah, this is Homer's real intention. Uh, The will of Zeus, right, the boule dios, I think it's a a teletar or something like that, is then played out through the rest of the epic. And it was her point that um, lack of attention to that slight detail there in the Proemium had skewed and uh, corrupted many interpretations of the epic. Interesting. And so here we see a, you know, perhaps a, a contrast with Virgil because although the divine is present, um, it doesn't seem to get down into the nitty gritty in the same way that it does in Homer.
1: Absolutely. Or, or certainly the Iliad. I mean, I think you could make the case in the Odyssey. You're right. That the, the gods recede. They do. Right. There's that scene early on where Z- Zeus is complaining about, well, we try to help human beings. Do they listen? No. Right. And so basically, going to forget
0: them. Yeah, leave them to themselves. And then
1: Athena has to remind them, but okay, but you promised Odysseus right. to get home. But basically, for everybody else, you're on your own.
0: And Athena's action in the Odyssey is so highly partial and it's like that of a human being. Yes. Whereas in the Iliad, that famous scene in the first book, when um, Achilles is about to slaughter Agamemnon right now you know, for his hubris and suddenly Athena stands behind him, grabs him by the hair yeah. and puts the other hand on his sword so he can't draw it and, and kill Agamemnon. Right. You know, that, that breathes a different kind of numinosity, um, if I can use that word. Yeah. A different kind of divine presence than the way Athena behaves in the Odyssey.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I would totally agree with that. Um, just to uh, to get your take, um, so it was uh, Jenny uh, Strauss Clay was the, yes. the, the scholar. So, do you think you know, so the way that I often teach the Iliad is like in not so much about trying to answer the question, of "What is the Iliad about?" Right, but when talking a about big talking about you know, central themes, right. you know, I usually start the students with the first word, you know, the rage, yeah, right. Um, and so, I wonder how she would respond to the to kind of the the um, the retort. Well, no. The it's really about the rage uh, of Achilles and what it does to him, and, and kind of you know how rage can, um, can turn a human into a monster. Hmm. Rather than it is really about fulfilling the will of Zeus, or do we need to necessarily separate those two
0: things? Well, oh, I don't think they need to be separated, and I think the notion, the question, can rage turn a human being into a monster, is not one that would have occurred necessarily to Homer, hmm. because Achilles' rage is not presented as something that is outside of him; it is who he is. Yeah and his destiny has to be, uh, played out through his character, which is that of being enraged that the lesser mortal Agamemnon has all the power. Yeah. Right. That nature would dictate that the, um, naturally superior individual Achilles should rule. Yeah. But here's a subversion of the natural order. Right. Ah. And so that kind of question is more, um, one that Euripides would ask, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, exactly. Which is f- at least four hundred years later, right? When things have changed once again because of Xenophanes and Plato uh, and individual Socrates and individuals like that, right? Where the gods are not the primeval force, right? That they were.
1: So even Eur- Euripides in his time was a kind of committing an act of presentism by imposing. I think, uh, in some ways, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, this I think, is
0: the psychological reading of Euripides. Yes, and there probably is a. There's probably another interpretation, but there's definitely some difference between uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, those two, and Euripides. There's something different for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, interesting stuff. I just, yeah. I, I find that this, um, especially from the episode last time, uh, considering this question, like, where are the gods in this? Right. And, and where does, where does, so there's, um, I mean, certainly the heavy hand of fate is is much more an important force in this epic than it ever is in oh. in uh, in the Iliad, yeah, right?
0: The park guy in their El Camino, right. right, rolling around,
1: right. Now, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know we talked about this, you know, way back when we we talked about the Iliad early on right. in the in the history of this podcast. Um, but that that scene from Book 16 of the Iliad where. Zeus sees that Sarpedon is about to go down yeah. and he says that, you know, oh, he's fated to die. And right. But he, he muses about, well, maybe I could just go pull him out and, and yeah. such. And then Hera says, well, you could do that and says, basically, we could all do that. But if you do it, we're all going to do it. And there's kind of this whisper that you're kind of messing with things that you shouldn't mess with.
0: Yes. Uh, but Upsets the whole apple cart. Right.
1: But, he, I mean, uh, Homer keeps it open. It's like Zeus, if he wanted to, could kind of toil with fate. There's also that episode where he's got the two jars and he's handing out, you know, curses That's and right. blessings. So he seems to be the executor of fate. That's right. Whereas in Virgil, fate is right. above everything. Yes. In right? the
0: Homeric epics, the theology is I don't want to say sloppy. It is sloppy, but it's not coherent in the way that someone like Virgil, post-Plato, would want it to be. Right. Exactly. So you know there are what you might call monotheistic elements or henotheistic elements in the Homeric epics where the one God rules them all. Yeah. Uh, but by the time you get to uh, Virgil, there's a strong monotheism. Yes. Although it's represented as the fates. Yes. Uh, t- you know, to whom all the gods, Jupiter included, are subject.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I- exactly. I think that that's exactly right. So um, when I talk about these, these kind of these... Um, these conflicts in my myth class. Right. Um, I, I don't necessarily that, you know, Homer's theology is sloppy. I would, I would, I often say, I think the, you know, the Greeks are in some, many was just much more comfortable with those kinds of paradoxes. Absolutely. than us post Plato and Aristotle right. are. Yep. Yeah.
0: And you know, the, one of the wisest things ever said about the Greeks is that they are just big children, right? Yeah. They are so credulous. Uh, I would say they will believe anything. Yeah. Really. That's what makes them so appealing. <laughs> right, and, exactly. and winsome. Who doesn't want to be around people who um, have just you could call it gullibility in a negative sense, but there's a you know there's a more sweet way to interpret it. They take the world on its own terms. Yes. O- okay. That's how it is. You know, like kids, right? Exactly. Okay. That's how it is. Right. You know. Right. You tell a child, you know, there's a there's a there's a monster in the closet eating all your Twinkies. Oh, really? <laughs> There is. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. And they respond either with terror or curiosity. Can I join him? Right. Yeah. And um, that's how the Greeks are. The Romans very different.
1: Very different. So
0: someone's listening to this and they think, "How, how did these guys wander off into, you know, Homer and monsters and Twinkies? I think the justification is this is precisely what Virgil is thinking about as he's writing this epic. His mind is filled with Homer and with the tragedians, right? Yeah. As well as his philosophical studies. And that, that's why he's fascinating to me.
1: Very well said. And speaking of monsters and Twinkies. Yes. It's time for the ads.
0: This episode of the Ad Nauseam podcast is brought to you, ladies and gentlemen, by Racial Coffee. Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon the brew child of Mr. Mark Helweg, an entrepreneur who was tired of the mass-produced coffee. <laughs> How many puns can I fit in Just there? Just
1: dropping them like that. Like, That's right. He's strafing us with the puns.
0: It's a program of uh, re uh, <laughs> Renewal? No. Jeff, tell me about the ratio.
1: Uh, well, I have the ratio eight. I once had the ratio six. I love both of these machines. The ratio eight I have is a beautiful stainless steel machine. I've got the hand blown glass carafe.
0: Borosilicate.
1: It's well, of course it's borosilicate, okay. right? And every morning it's waiting there. I put in my my um, my grounds into my yes. into my the metal cone, right? And then I just
0: simply hit the button. Uh, how many five or six different buttons? You got to do a little backflip or something like that.
1: It's one button. One and it, button, and I barely just kind of brush it with my fingertip, and it's engaged. And it's a simple process. right the first step you got the bloom nice all the off-gassing all that nasty
0: co2 is obliterated so the hot water comes down into the cone gently massages the grounds and off goes the co2
1: yes and then it then you get the then the brew stage which is where the real magic happens okay and um and then it's ready wow and that's it and then um it pours well i hear too oh don't get me started on the on the borosilicate uh the hand-blown carafe (laughs) The pouring is a work of art. Yeah. Right. Um, um, that's. I think that's the, probably my favorite part of the upgrade okay. to, the, to the to the Ratio Eight. Yes. Um, the it's just, pour is incredible. It's just a beautiful machine. What it's about? Wonderful. What about? What do you got there? Well, in your
0: place. Oh well, I've got the Ratio Eight also. That's it's right. It's got the oyster color with the walnut accents, and uh, this machine. I think I'm going on. Um, I think I'm going on four years, almost four years now. Wow. And it's like I just took it out of the box. Box. Excuse yeah. me. It shows a little bit of wear and tear, but. Uh, if I were using your standard squirty plastic machines, I'd be on about the fourth one by now, honestly, because they do not last with their flippy little plastic lids and they're not well designed at all.
1: They're terrible. I've got a couple of them still in my basement. That's right. I don't know why they're down there, but
0: yeah. yeah. Would you like to hear a new, um, limerick that I've written? Oh, we've heard this before. This isn't new. No, this this is is brand new. Brand new. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Then I want to hear it. Uh, it's not great, but I (laughs) cranked it out in record time. Okay. What do you got? Here we go. It's, it's in honor of ratio. I've tired of drinking bad Joe. It vexes from head down to toe. It's brackish and tangy, repulsive and rangy. And so it's to ratio I'll go.
1: Very nice. Nice. So you, you could
0: criticize tangy and rangey. I know, okay. I knew that was coming. Yes. Can you think of something to rhyme with tangy? Tangy. No,
1: off the top of my head, I can't.
0: No, tangy. That was a tough one.
1: So you just um, had, you had to go with just assonance. That's right. Okay. Now
0: I I sing a lot of hymns and psalms. You know. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes those uh, those rhyme schemes. You have to pronounce the word a certain way for it to fit. You've noticed this, I of have, course. Exactly. And uh, but it's no
1: problem. It's no problem. It's no problem. I remember so. As a kid, it always struck me really funny because yeah. I always pronounce it improperly to make it rhyme. Yes, I and know. And that just made it hilarious. I would
0: do that as a kid. <laughs> and uh, but I mean, tangy and and rangy, rangy, rangy. It's okay.
1: It's a, it's okay. All right. So, listeners, do yourself a favor. Go to ratiocoffee.com. Um, look at these beautiful machines. Um, and and uh, take uh, um, you know take our word for it. They're 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 fantastic. Um, these are the things that you can pass down to your children. Um, take find the machine you want, the six or the eight. Uh, type in the coupon code A N C O
0: B four. A N C O B four. That's correct. And that will get them. That will get them fifteen percent off any ratio product uh, for the month of February. A N yes. ad nauseum coffee C O B four. Right. So before you go, oh yes,
1: uh, get yourself one of these machines. This episode of is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Dave, I think for pretty much about exactly as long as I have been alive. Wow! Uh, just north of fifty years, Hackett Publishing has been doing their thing from their their home offices in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes, um, they've been making they've been producing these um, in, incredible uh, translations and academic works, uh, affordable, right? Attractive. Yes, they
0: purvey, uh, don't they? They do. They are purveyors of fine
1: quality literature. That's right. So I use them in my classes. I got them on my shelves. Uh, The Lombardo translation you've been hearing throughout our Aeneid series is one of these wonderful translations. I can't say enough about Hackett. But I think that you could say more maybe through verse,
0: Dave? I could. Yes. I have a limerick I cooked up here. What do you got? Here we go. I've tired of buying junk books and enduring a clerk's nasty looks. Expensive, unsightly, regretting it nightly. Yet with Hackett, my book-buying cooks. I like it a lot. Do you? I do. As, yeah. as I was composing this, it occurred to me one of those philosophical axioms that we all should ruminate upon. Mm-hmm. Just because one can write limericks, <laughs> doesn't mean one should. This uh, one didn't have the problem with the tangy and the rangy. No,
1: it it, it was sound, it, it felt solid all the way through. Really? Right? Well, the
0: last line has too many syllables, honestly, but I, I read them quickly. Yet with Hackett, my book buying cooks, and that, that did
1: it. It, it. it works. It sounds, it, it sounds well, good to me. Yeah, so
0: if you yeah. want your book buying to cook, yes. you should go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, pick out something from their broad range of... Uh, selectable books. They have East Asian studies, classics, of course, Latin American, philosophy, uh, modern history, Islam, tremendous Mm -hmm. number of options. Put them into your little grocery Mm satchel, And then when you get to check out, what happens? Well, then you're going to put in the coupon code
1: AN2023. So AN ad nauseum with the current year, and that's going to get you 20% off your entire order and also free shipping. Check it out.
0: All right, Jeff, so as we get back into it, mm-hmm. now we are long around line number 590, line 600. Mm-hmm. And where are we going to go now for the rest of Book 9 of the Aeneid? Well, before we get
1: there, I want to to say one last thing about uh, Virgil and the Muses before we leave that behind. And just call the audience's attention to There's this, this is wonderful, this famous mosaic that is now in the Bardo Museum in oh, Tunis, yes. Tunisia. You've been there. I have. Yes, when you it.
0: visited Tatooine. Yes,
1: yeah, it was it was great, and and this is one of the highlights of of seeing the Virgil mosaic up close and personal. Um, very easy, easily searchable. Um, but it's Virgil uh, seated between two very specific muses. He's between uh, Cleo, the muse of history, right. and Melpomene, the muse of tragedy. So, so
0: history and tragedy. Yes.
1: So I just thought that was... Interesting choice. Yes. And so we just talked about you know Calliope showing up in the epic. Yeah, the but, muse of epic. Where's she? And he was earlier in the epic with Erato. And now we have two other muses. So I mm. thought it was just kind of a nice kind of underlining of this point we've been making of Virgil with these very specific muses. Right. And this is another one.
0: Probably yeah. the place that people have seen this the most is that it is featured on the cover of a number of uh, the Wheelock Latin textbook.
1: Oh, that's right. Which that's is, where is it's not by our
0: sponsor. It's HarperCollins. Collins.. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've taught from that, I've taught from that. Yep. Now that we talked about it in a previous episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there it has, on the cover, a very nice reproduction of this famous mosaic.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, that's right. I, I completely forgot about that. Yeah. All right, before we get to the very end of Book 9, yes. there is. I want to accuse Virgil of a little bit of filler here. Oh, really? So there's a scene where the Rutulians attack the, the Trojan camp. They pull down one of the towers, crushing and killing a number of Trojans. And just like we saw with Nisus and Urielis, Two young men survive, mm. and uh, one of them, Helenor, uh rushes into the Rutulian line and is, is, is quickly killed. Uh, Lycus tries to climb back over the wall, and it's actually Turnus that pulls him down mm-hmm. a, and kills him. And so it just struck me as kind of a like a, min, a mini little doublet of Nisus and Urialis. I didn't quite understand kind of the purpose of the scene, other than just to kind of, I don't know, um, jack up the action. Well, he uh,
0: is patronized by the muse of history, so maybe he's just describing what happened. Oh, I see. Is what, that okay with you?
1: Well, I think he's still under the—he's under the uh, influence of Calliope here, right? Okay. So, uh, is this epic? I don't know. It just—it uh, struck me as a little bit unnecessary. Um, but uh, I'll let the audience decide for themselves. Okay.
0: Right. All right. I'm comfortable with okay. that.
1: Okay. And then we get to this um, uh, Ascanius, uh, the son of Aeneas, gets his first battlefield kill.
0: Don't you mean Ulysses? Uh,
1: you well—that's—that's that's, you know it's his other name, right? Okay. okay.
0: And so uh, every hero needs at least two names. Of course, right, right. right. Superman and Clark Kent. Right.
1: Paris and uh, Alexander. And, and that's right. right.
0: How about you? Uh,
1: do I have two names? Yeah. Um, Jeff and Jeffrey. Okay, there Jeff. we go. Right. <laughs> David and David.
0: Right. Yeah. Dumb and Dumber. <laughs>
1: <There>. <laughs> exactly. So um, there's a scene that that uh, it has almost kind of a David and Goliath quality to right. it. Right. So we have this uh, this uh, um, Rutulian uh, Numanus who's mm-hmm. out there boasting, and um, Ascanius takes him out. I thought it was interesting the way that, that Virgil frames the action. We get Ascanius killing Numanus and then almost in like a immediate mini flashback, we get Numanus' uh, taunt. Mm. And I thought that was the most interesting part of it. The way he's kind of shaking his fist and belidia- belittling and emasculating the Trojans before right. he kind of gets what's coming to yeah. him. Yeah. So
0: that's Nemesis, right? Yeah. Getting uh, getting in line with uh, hubris. Exactly. So Ascanius on the battlefield for the
1: first time getting some hair on his chest as, mm-hmm. as a warrior. Um, and so he kills Numanus with, with an arrow. And then we get this this, uh, this um, a pretty wonderful boast, in my
0: opinion. Right. Do we um, want to do some Latin yeah, first? Yeah, let's just
1: give us a little Latin. Just it. a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So this is line 590. Tum primum bello calerem in There's that arrow. Diciter anteferas rere Ascanius for tem quamanu fudissa numanum. Qui remulo cogno menerat trinique Germanam nu per talamo habebat.
1: Very nicely done. Thank you. I'm gonna give uh, A. S. Klein's translation here just to shake it up. Just to
0: mix it up a little yeah, bit.
1: Yeah, no no shade to Mr. Lombardo. No. But, um, but also just a quick plug. Have you ever checked out uh, Klein's poetry and translation page?
0: Yes, yeah. The, you know, we have referenced it uh numerous times what? here on the podcast. Oh, okay,
1: okay, got my go. mind slipping. Don't yeah. you
0: spend a little time each day going back through our catalog? Not at all. <laughs>
1: right. I don't mean like
0: looking at pictures of myself. Neither do I.
1: Right. Um. So, but he uh, a prolific translator. Yes, and a lot, a lot of stuff available for free on the web. Yeah, so, quite
0: quite accurate. Yeah, not not I would say not quite the style of Lombardo. Yes,
1: I would agree. But it's very workable. Yes, and so just to, just to kind of to shake it up a bit. Um. So I want to translate those lines Dave just read, and then um a bit more at length, just because I think it's just a, a great passage. So he translates. Then they say Escanes first aimed his swift arrows in war. "'Used till now to terrify wild creatures in flight, "'and with his hand he felled brave Numanus, "'who was surnamed Remulus, "'and had lately won Turnus's sister as his wife. "'Numanus marched ahead of the front rank, uh, "'sounding words that were fitting and unfitting to repeat, "'his heart swollen with new-won royalty "'and boasting loudly of his greatness.' Twice conquered Trojans, aren't you ashamed to be besieged and shut behind ramparts again, fending off death with walls? So it's like we were saying, it's like, aren't you ashamed? Like, here you are back again. Right. You, you he, tri- fig- he figured it out, <laughs> he did. right? Right,
0: right. are not you being pummeled in Troy and now you come here to be pummeled?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How are, you, how are we enjoying yourselves? Right. So behold, these are the men who demand our brides through war. What God, what madness has driven you to Italy? Here are Noah Trides, Noah Ulysses, maker of fictions, a race from hardy stock. We bring our newborn sons to the river and toughen them with the water's fierce chill. Oh, that's interesting. So they're just kind of just dunking their kids. Yeah, in the ice water. Just to toughen them up.
0: Have you ever done that with your sons here in in, uh, Michigan?
1: No, I've never had. No ice fishing? I've never gone ice fishing It doesn't appeal
0: to you to sit out in a cold shanty (laughs) waiting for some... Hovering above a hole in the ice. Fish to swim by the hole?
1: I've never understood that,
0: Hmm. but... uh, the way I get my fish is uh, I just go to the freezer and take them out of the box. Yeah. You know, they're encrusted with about four inches of bread. Breading, exactly yeah, right? heat them up in the microwave and <laughs> a, a delicacy. You're
1: good to go, right. Um, As children, they keep watch in the chase and weary the forest. Their play is to wheel their horses and shoot bow- arrows from the bow. But patient at work and used to little. Our young men tame the earth with the hoe or shake cities in battle. All our life were abraded by iron. We goad our bullocks. Bullock's flanks with a reverse spear and slow age doesn't weaken our strength of spirit or alter our vigor. Hold
0: on. Yes. He, he's going way over the top oh, here, bringing in so much stuff. <laughs> this this monologue, this uh, soliloquy boast, you know he's going to get it in the end.
1: Oh, exactly. Right. So he start, now he's bragging, he's bragging on the, their kids. Now he's bragging on it when we get older. Yeah. We still
0: got it when we're old. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we set a helmet on our white hairs and delight in collecting fresh spoils and living on plunder. And now, now he turns the cannons on them. So, yes. we're, we're so great. Now, this is what you guys are yeah, like.
0: Yeah, you Phrygian
1: <laughs> Eastern dandies. Right. You... Where embroidered saffron and gleaming purple, idleness pleases you. You delight in the enjoyment of dance and your tunics have sleeves and your hats have ribbons. Can
0: you imagine <laughs> Virgil writing this? I, I can just see him sitting at a table somewhere in the Tuscan countryside, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, putting out these lines or dictating them, you know, to his servant. And then he finishes off this section. He says, hmm. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff. I think I'll have an extra fig today, or you know, an extra glass of wine. You think
1: he rewarded himself with an extra fig yeah, that day? I yeah, I
0: think, think I'll take a little longer nap. You know, as he strolls in the um, the sunset evening, the, yes. the sky looks a little more bright because he thought that was some good stuff I good just stuff. put together. Exactly. It's funny. It's rapid. It's uh, it's over the top. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he was quite pleased with a, this. And a
1: satisfied sigh at exactly. the end of that day, right? But I just love this. Your tunics have sleeves <laughs> and your hats are all ribbony. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the nerve. Uh,
1: a few more lines here. It says, oh, truly you Phrygian women as you're not Phrygian men. Run over the heights of Dindimus, where a double reed makes music for accustomed ears. The timbrels call to you, and the Barycynthian boxwood flute of the mother of Ida. Leave weapons to men, and abandon the sword.
0: (laughs) Isn't that great stuff? Yeah, the the kids call that throwing shade. Throwing shade. Right? Right. right. I think they still do, I don't know. But I can't find any kids to tell me what's current. Uh, Oh, really? When I ask them, they just roll their eyes. Your own own children will keep you up on what's hip and... It's not that, Dad. (laughs) Okay, granted. So what is it? It's not that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. The students in my classes, you know, what do they say these days? They don't say that anymore. Yeah. It, so it, everything moves so rapidly yes I know yeah. yeah unlike these guys who when they get old right and they put the helmets on their white hair they're still just as tough they oh. still know all the hip slang
1: they knew they know the hip slang right till, mm-hmm. the, till their
0: to the on their deathbed so what happens to numanus after this long glorious bow well th-
1: apparently this is where he gets the arrow you know through his through his head right mm. away so um, from I'm, ascanius from ascanius right so um, again virgil sets it up that we numanus is killed And then he backs it up and says, and this is why. It's an interesting kind of flip in the the time order. So the
0: incongruity, of course, which is always a nice touch in any kind of literary setting, he was killed by a very young boy, right? Yes. Uh, For whom it was the first kill. Yeah. Ascanius is not some great warrior, but it only takes um, the son of Aeneas, right, to dispatch the biggest boaster. Among the Rutulians,
1: right. So it reminds me so much of the David and Goliath story. You're right. right? This is you know, Goliath out there thumping his chest, right. And here comes you know scrawny shepherd boy with his right. with his handful of stones
0: and his slingshot. And that's, yep. that's all it
1: takes. So I did think there was some truth in, in that boast, though, because um, the, the okay. stuff about you know do you delight in in dance and, and such it kind of reminded me back to the remember the Trojan game. Yeah, you know, some some of that you know that frittering about that the Trojans yeah. did, but yeah. this is
0: this is more about Paris, right? Yeah, this is this is linking Aeneas to Paris and the kind of um, a kind of rebuke that Hector gives to Paris mm. when he finds him in um, Helen's boudoir, right? Right. I, I think it is a its it has got to be it's got to be book three. I'm trying to remember now. I don't remember. Book two is the ships. I think book three is the Duomachia. Where um, Paris and Menelaus go toe to toe temporarily, and then he's rescued and dropped down in the you know the bedroom chamber of Helen. That's right. And Hector goes to rebuke him and says basically this kind of thing. You know, you're such a coward. You're so you're so womanish in terms of your battle prowess. But then he has to forgive him because he's his brother. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's
0: the trope, right? Very similar to what um, happens with uh, Aeneas in Carthage, right? Back in book four, when he's prancing around in the Phrygian cape and the purple and so forth, yes. and he gets rebuked. Right. Go off to Italy and man up.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well well said. I think that at the, at the end of his boast where he, he actually, um, he, sh- he gives the a flick of the chin to the mother of ida mm-hmm. so um again so he's now he's insulting Sibylle. right and so maybe that's uh, we're supposed to maybe see kind of a whisper of, of kind of uh, divine revenge there yes again the god the is here at a remove right but maybe by reading between the lines we can see okay there's more to than just a well-timed arrow from ascanius
0: that's right yeah so where are we headed now?
1: Well, um, I mean, think let, let's let's wrap this let's wrap this book up. What happens next?
0: Well, we have uh, the taunt and the boast, right? Mm-hmm. We got these characters of Pandarus and Bittius. That's right. Uh, this is lines um, 670 or so, right to the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they throw open the the Trojan gates, right? Yep. And the Rutulians are about to be defeated until their hero shows up. Yes. Turnus, the big guy. Right. So now we're getting close to where the epic itself is going to terminate. So he kills Bityus. Pandarus closes the gates again. Apparently there was like a, a little... Um, mat you could step on and when you stepped on it the gates opened and closed or there was a like an electronic eye mounted above the gates like
1: and... a like a, a, a like a 7 eleven that's right right, <laughs>
0: right. But they don't use that pressure pad anymore it's it's all um optical i think
1: it's all optical these days but at yeah. this
0: stage probably they still had the sort of pressure pad. The pressure pad pressure pad right now to to operate now the... is
1: is the pandara isn't that the name of the guy who who shoots the arrow that that um after that duel between Menelaus and Paris, isn't he the guy mm. who the gods kind of instigate
0: to shoot the arrow, and then it all kind of
1: breaks? Pandarus,
0: is it, is it? Yes, I think you're right. I mean, I had to check because I didn't remember. But that can't be the same Pandarus as this guy, because when I checked, it said the Trojan character back in the Iliad was killed by Diomedes. Oh, okay. So he didn't survive here. This guy also gets killed, though. Yeah, Turnus
1: kills him in this book. Yeah, yeah, cuts
0: his head in half with a sword. <laughs> so basically, if your name is Pandarus. You are going to meet a violent. You're end. doomed. That's right. right. You don't want to be that kind of guy.
1: Right. So Pandarus challenges. Uh, he he, um, he taunts Turnus, and right. then Turnus turns on him and kills him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Virgil suggests that Turnus could then now he could have opened the gates again and let in the rest of his army.
0: And it could be the end. It could
1: be the end. Um, but he's got to. He's he's got his own axe to grind. Right. And so he's uh, uh, intent on his own glory. Kills many Trojans. Um, and then um, at the Trojans' rally, and Turnus has to give up. He has to back up, and he actually jumps into the Tiber River. Yeah, and he has to kind of uh, slink back to his army.
0: Yeah, and as we know now, the Tiber River is on Aeneas's side. Yes, right. That's right. Oh, that's right. Exactly. He's no longer on the side of Turnus, even though he's the homegrown character. Sure, mm-hmm. right. And,
1: and that, yeah, I'm, I think that Virgil wants us to remember that uh, bit. By, you know, why does he have Turnus jump into the river? Mm-hmm. It's a, again, it's another kind of symbol of his surrender.
0: That's and right. He's, he's kind of falling into the arms of the enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's over. Well, I think we have to wrap it up, don't we? Yeah, we're up against it. The Smucker's executives are coming in to, I don't know, sue us or something. Oh, they were not happy about no, that. About no, about the Uncrustables. No, uh, what's uh, what's the name of that sc- scandal? Uncrustable Gate. Uncr-
1: Uncrustable Gate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like right. Watergate
0: or Uncrustable Dome. Right.
1: So I hear them. They're getting they're getting angry. They're yes. getting loud and noisy. So we got to wrap out this their, up.
0: Taking out their butter knives and uh, slathering up their <laughs> slices of bread. <laughs> Right. Could this get any more ridiculous?
1: I don't think it could. So let's thank some people and get out of here. Okay,
0: Dave. Who do we got to thank? We want to thank Mishka first of all, our sound engineer, who is about to celebrate a birthday. No. Yeah. All right. Happy birthday, Mishka! We are so thankful for all your excellent work and putting together this podcast Indeed. and doing a bunch of other excellent things for us. We really appreciate it.
1: Yes. Thanks also to Scott Vinzen and Ken Tamplin for the great music that you hear throughout the episode. The uh, screaming
0: guitar. Man, I mean, to, that to guy sing guy like Ken and
1: to play like Scott, it would be amazing. Yeah,
0: it really would. Take yep. a lot of work, which I'm probably not willing to do, <laughs> but I'm so glad that other people have put in the time because uh, I love the blues that... Uh, that Scott plays, it's fantastic, just incredible.
1: Yep. So, Dave, if they want to get in touch with us, if the, if you want a shout out, if you got a
0: question, a comment, we're not a suggestion, gonna beg, you know. Yeah. Our, our begging days are over. No, we're not begging, But if they would, if they would be okay. so moved, okay. What, what should they do? They should write an email to Jeff at There's mm-hmm. a V in ad nauseum. Yes. Uh, N a v s e a m, and then they should say, uh, "Here I am. These are these are my interests in classics. Can you please?" Give me, you know, some shout outs on your podcast. We would be happy to do that. Or
1: yeah, or you could write to Dave at Dave at nauseum dot com. Just one Dave there. That's right. Uh, <laughs> don't forget the V. Um, and if you write to Dave, um, make sure you just let out everything that just irritates you about the podcast. Oh man! And uh, and just if you got an axe to grind, just grind it in Dave's yeah. direction. Well,
0: I think that if there's anything that irritates them about the podcast, it's probably me. Really? You think so? <laughs> I do think so. All yeah. right. And uh, Jeff. Yeah. What's on tap for next week? Let's do something different. We're definitely going to do something. We're going to take a break
1: break from the Indian. Yeah, we threatened
0: last time to do something different. I think this time we will do something different.
1: Do you want to let the audience know or do you want to keep them in suspense?
0: I think we let them know. Okay. All right. Well, go
1: for it. Tell them what we're going to do.
0: So next time we're going to talk about a project I've been working on, which is a translation of a Latinist, uh, a man named Samuel Rutherford. Okay. And uh, Samuel Rutherford lived in the 17th century. And he wrote this massive book that I have been translating. Um, You're almost done. I'm almost done. By the time we get to the recording yeah. of the episode, I think I will be done. Fantastic. So this is going to be a little bit different direction. It's not mythology. It's not history. It's classics because it's all Latin, but mm-hmm. we'll see what we can do with it. Sounds great. All right. And Jeff, I think that about wraps it up. What if they want a t-shirt? Hey, we got a t-shirt order this week. Fantastic. Hooray. Yeah, yeah. Okay. for the... um Quynokent, Dokent, right? Oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's a great the Erasmian tag, Tama Tamathemata the things that hurt teach. Yep. And uh, if you want to get a t-shirt, listener, go to ad nauseum.com, check out our Lurch with Merch session, mm-hmm. section, excuse me, and you can pick up a very nice t-shirt for yourself and support this podcast. Fantastic.
1: I believe I have the parting shot. I was going to say that, Jeff. Yeah. I believe you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. I love this because it's just loaded with pomposity. This comes from Carol Truax's The Art of Salad Making. Uh, isn't that great? Just the title <laughs> gets
0: <laughs> The Art of Salad Making. All In right. which
1: Carol writes, Every salad you serve is a picture you have painted, a sculpture you have modeled, a drama you have created.
0: Can we talk about that a little bit? <laughs> what else is there to say? Well, on the way over here, you were telling me you do a lot of the cooking for your family. I do. Yeah. Do you ever make salads? I do make salads. Okay. Yes. But and I've
1: never thought them in sculptural mm, terms,
0: right? It's a picture you've painted, a sculpture you've modeled. For me, it's more like some lettuce and assorted <laughs> vegetables I toss into a bowl. Exactly. And my biggest challenge is getting the right amount of dressing yeah i don't want it to swim no but i also don't want to get to the bottom and have it be dry of
1: course exactly right there's the drama is that artistry is That, that drama that is
0: drama i'll never look at a salad the same way again thanks for listening